You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 4th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening. How's everyone? Good. Super. Pretty good. I'm having a lot of fun surfing the internet this evening. You guys remember that term? Surfing? <laughs> I, surfing the internet. Rebecca, have you ever surfed the internet? Uh, yeah. You know, I I surf all the time. I hang 10 on the <laughs> tubes. It's, isn't it I, surfing the web? I mean, right? Isn't that the real yeah. so, you surf term? surf the web, I think. Yeah, so surf the, the my, my daughter showed me this video. It's it's a introduction to the internet from the early 1990s. For Whoa. kids. The internet for kids. <laughs> the internet for kids. Look up, you look up the internet for kids on YouTube and it's hilarious. You, you know what's sad though is that when you say surfing the internet, like my first thought is not to laugh at that. My first thought is like, well, yeah, that's what you do. Because that's what I grew up like understanding that the internet was yeah. surfing, surfing the web. I don't know. It's just like I get that's not a phrase anyone uses anymore. <laughs> right. But, it's dated. Yeah. How about, <laughs> how about this one? Elderly. How about the uh, the information superhighway? Remember that yes. one? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Again, like, that. I don't yeah. bat an eye. Like, yeah, of course. It's the information superhighway. 14.4. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so what, Steve, you saw a video that was teaching people how to use the internet? Yeah, like introducing the, these strange new concepts like email. You mean <laughs> just you for can, children, right? Yeah. So it's like go online and, and meet strangers. Yeah, right. Tell them where you live. <laughs> it's okay. It's safe. That was like the first thing my dad taught me. Like he left me alone on the computer for like five minutes and he came back in. I'm like, look, dad, I'm in a town and I get a little picture by my name and I've just met someone. And he's just like pulled the plug. He's like, nope. <laughs> Look, kids, you can download pictures in mere minutes. <laughs> Look at the lines one by oh, one. That was the other thing I very quickly learned was how to look at uh, image caches in on the computer and I was like who is this woman like that's how I learned who Pamela Anderson was because my brothers would use the computer uh. and just download all of these pictures of Pamela Anderson <laughs> they have any pictures of Pamela Anderson in the British Museum wow uh no maybe I'm not sure but it's funny you should mention it Steve yeah, it's because totally it, random. it just so happens that on this date June 7th 1753, the British Museum was officially founded because King George II gave his agreement to an act of parliament that would accept the collection of Sir Hans Sloane, uh, who was a physician in London, though originally Irish born, uh, who had collected this incredible collection of specimens, plant and animal spe specimens, uh, 71,000 specimens uh, in exchange for 20,000 pounds for his heirs, uh, which in today's pounds is 2 million. And the museum was open to the public January 15th, 1759. So it took a little bit of time to actually set it up. But it is, uh, it, it remains the world's oldest public national museum. Although, uh, the natural history collection has since been moved into its own museum back in 1881. So yeah, 
happy birthday to the British Museum. Hans Sloan, a uh, little fun factoid about uh, Sir Sloan, Sir Hans. He introduced chocolate milk to Europe. Uh, he encountered it while in Jamaica, although in Jamaica they mixed cocoa with water and I quote from his Wikipedia page, he is reported to have found it nauseating. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is so, awful. Try it, folks. Right. <laughs> so he brought it back to England, though, and he mixed it with milk, which he found quite pleasant. And apparently everyone else did, too. And so Cadbury started selling his drinking chocolate uh, and apothecaries sold it as medicine. Of course, oh my you know, god! Makes everything better. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Hell yeah! Still does. I can see that? It's good for dementor attacks. I hear. <laughs> I know. Is that a is that a Harry Potter? Harry po- yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Two yeah. points. Yeah. Two points, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. I don't know about you guys, but I love museums. That probably does not come as a shock to anybody, but I. <laughs> Really, I just love walking around museums. Who doesn't, does? It doesn't, doesn't even love. matter what What's kind of museum. Yeah. Oh, sure it does. How about the Creation Museum? You'd hate. Oh, that. Uh, you got I would. There. I would love to go there. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, you know, just because it, I don't oh, agree with should. it. I mean, I could love it in a different way. I. I would. Yeah, but I wouldn't pay him a dime. Yeah. I don't know. Like no. I. Whenever. Whenever I travel to a new place, uh, the locals usually, you know, if I'm giving a talk or something, their first thought is usually to take me to a science museum. But I always ask that they not do that, though I appreciate the thought because I found that science museums tend to be kind of the same thing over and over again. Have you, hey. do, do you find that? Like some, I, I feel like these days they've just sort of been copied and pasted. Yeah. Over and over again. Yeah. I think I talked about the fact Evan and I uh, not too long ago went to the Connecticut Science Museum and it was a little disappointing. Um, although now it's like, let's see how many mistakes we could find in each yeah. of the, or just like, just criticize how lame they are, you know? So yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the whole brain alpha wave experiment. Thing. I know. It's like, yeah. oh, let's do something oh, really? that's superficially uh-huh. exciting, but doesn't te- teach you anything about actual science. <laughs> That's mm. right. You know, in uh, Hamden, in my hometown, we have the Eli Whitney Museum. Well, I, when, the first time I went there, they didn't have a cotton gin. I'm like, are you what? kidding me? I'm in yeah. the Eli Whitney Museum. Yeah, that's Museum, ridiculous. And you don't have the one thing I expect to see. <laughs> that should be the first thing you have. Well, Steve <laughs> asked the guy, you know, where's his cotton gin? And the guy said, what's cotton? It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty pathetic. No, but so what, what happened? They, they finally like found one and brought it into the museum. I, I don't know. Last time I was there, they didn't have one. I should check back with them. That's mm. anyway. So, Bob, I understand that <laughs> oh, scientists boy. have found a mega Earth. You are correct. This this one got me pretty happy. This is such a cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like how often do you have a, a new type of, of planet classifications? I was like pretty excited to read it. Um, but yes, astronomers have identified an entirely new class of exoplanet that they make. Super Earths look pretty puny by comparison, actually. Uh, and they even gave them a cool name, Mega Earths. And uh, this first example of that class that they found is 17 times the mass of Earth. So incredibly massive. Now, the team responsible for finding this is uh, part of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. And I thought that sounds like a pretty cool team up, doesn't it? Harvard and Smithsonian, that's pretty cool. Um, the planet, as usual, though, has a boring name, Kepler 10c, you know, Oh, well. Been there, done that. That sounds like a homeopathic remedy. It's a designation. It's not even really worthy of a name, you know? I know, but the first... Kepler from the Kepler telescope, right? I guess it's the 10th sun they 
investigate it and see. A is the sun, B is the first planet, C is the third planet. It's just a designation. I, I know that, but this is this is a special <laughs> one. This is the first of its class. You know, th- throw in a, something else. How about Megatron? Does Megatron uh, live on Mega Earth? <laughs> of course. <Yeah. laughs> he might have trouble. He, even he might have trouble moving around. Uh, but they disco- They actually discovered this years ago, but they only knew about its diameter initially, which is about 2.3 times the Earth, not 17 times. Uh, 2.3 times the Earth. And that's because the Kepler telescope that, uh, that they found it with isn't designed to determine the mass because it, it uses, it used, I guess, the transit method to tell the size based on the dimming of the planet in front of its, in front of its parent star. So you can get the diameter, sure, but you really can't get the mass. So based on its size then at 2.3 Earth's, uh, diameters, they assumed it was a gas giant. More specifically, uh, it'd be in the class of a mini Neptune. Um, but then recently, uh, they used the Harps North instrument in the Telescopio Nazionale Galileo in the Canary Islands to measure its mass. And they did that uh, using uh, finding uh, the, the stellar wobble that the, uh, the planet caused. So I'm sure they were very amazed when they, when they found out that it was actually 17 Earth masses. And, uh, you know, given that it was only a little bit more than twice the Earth's diameter, it's got to be a rocky world, right? It can't really be much else than that. And that, that one, that one aha moment has all these uh, interesting ramifications tied up into it, which they probably realized relatively quickly. Uh, so first of all, um, it's huge. Obviously, that's immense, uh, which is why it warrants an, an entirely new classification. Uh, super Earths are only a, a little bit bigger than Earth, up to about 10 Earth masses. So this is clearly uh, well above that. So since Kepler 10C was 17, th- they had to do something different or special for this one. It was second... Our theories of planetary formation say rocky planets should not get that big. What should happen is that they, at least up until now, they thought that um, they would accrete a huge atmosphere around it and turn into a gas giant like Neptune. I think this is really cool, though, because anytime we find a hole in a theory, it doesn't usually mean that the theory is a dud, right? It just means that that it needs some updating, some uh, some revising, which means that we get to learn something new. So that to me, that's always a plus, and that's one of the cool things about science. How much would I weigh on the planet? Um, I think it's like three times your current weight. So I actually could walk three around G's. on there, even though I'd be amazingly. I don't tall. know, oh, man. Th- three G's is harsh. Three G's yeah. is huge. Plus the heat would kill you probably instantly. So I wouldn't and, worry and about that. Wow. Well, if the heat cool. wasn't a problem though, like would I would, would, I, would I die of like a heart attack or something eventually? Three, no. <laughs> yes. I don't think it'd be a heart attack. You would probably collapse at some point. But yeah, you could probably walk around. Three G's is nasty, but it's not. Uh, you know, it's not something that you would it would instantly just crush you or anything. And then the other cool thing about this uh, is that this, the solar system that this planet is in is 11 billion years old. So it formed. That's old. Oh man, it formed only three billion years after the Big Bang. And if you think about it, Jeez. that does that doesn't make a lot of sense either, since because you know heavy heavy elements that are interspersed throughout the atmosphere and in your bodies are they're distributed by supernovas. They, you know, they, they cook up all the heavy elements and the, the actual supernova itself cooks up the last bunch and spews them everywhere. And then that enriches like a hydrogen helium cloud, which collapses into another solar system, which, which creates the, the, the next generation of stars that have these heavy metals in them. And of course, the ro- uh, rocky materials are now there. But three billion years after the Big Bang, that's not a lot of time. So scientists thought that, that that's not enough time for these elements, these heavy elements to disperse and form rocky planets, but uh, they were were obviously wrong. It, it it did happen that long ago. So and 
then that, of course, is tied to something even more important, perhaps, is that if rocky planets can form earlier, then so can life. Because as far as we can tell, as far as what we know now by our one data point, if you, uh, if you have a rocky planet, you could have life or, you, or life kind of needs a rocky planet. And, and I'm sure there's, there's tons of exceptions, but we really, really don't know anything about that. So, so Bob, when you say rocky planet, does everyone talk like, hey, yo, Adrian? <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly all right i didn't yeah. see that if one i get beat up tonight I have, I have no comment on that so we but, uh posted this on our facebook page and there were two interesting comments or themes of comments yes well, i was laughing my ass off as, as a goof i, I posted <laughs> i posted a, a little facebook post on this which i've been doing every day which is a lot of fun to come up with a very concise, pithy, and somewhat humorous and educational little uh, Facebook post, like about three <laughs> or four paragraphs. So I throw in there something I want. I didn't want it. I wanted to throw something goofy in there. So I said, instead of saying it's 560 light years away, I converted that into millimeters. So it was like 5.3, I think, sextillion millimeters from the Earth. And I thought that was kind of like, ha, huh, whatever, you know, kind of funny, whimsical. And people were, some people got it, but a lot of people were like freaked out. Like, why did you do that? Uh, had a meltdown. Why, it's like, why? That doesn't make any sense. Why can't, why couldn't you convert it to kilometers or miles? And I'm, and I'm like, that's kind of my, that's kind of my point. Yeah. So, so you could wrap your head around, you know, 10 quadrillion miles, but you can't, you, but you can't wrap it around 5.3 sextillion. It's really, it was really silly. And they just, I'm just surprised they didn't get what I, that I was just being goofy. The other thing was, uh, a couple of people, a couple of different people said, Oh, I wonder if there are giants on that planet. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't they? actually be smaller with exactly more if anything <laughs> the they would, they would yeah. be smaller because they have enormous gravity exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> bob next time use angstroms that'll really oh send them what a good Z. idea i don't know if numbers go do that it. high that's funny <laughs> of course they do well jay um you're going to tell us about secondary drowning as if you know we didn't have enough to worry about with primary drowning now we got to worry about secondary drowning. yeah you'll notice that we've been talking on and off on the show here about topics that you may have recently seen on your favorite social media outlet. And, you know, I think Facebook is probably the most common place that people find these old articles like dredged up from, you know, five, six, seven years ago. And that's because for some reason, like these old items just become popular again. I don't know. I guess somebody just, you know, finds it, puts it on there and it kind of takes off again. And people end up emailing us saying, hey, what's this about? And a lot of times we see that it's an old article, but people are asking you know, emailing us asking legitimate questions, and uh, that's why we've been bringing them up. It is kind of interesting how you see these things come and go. So this time, we have something called dry drowning. Now, don't get confused, because I know, Evan, what popped into your head. This is not when Bob has this di- mm. gigantic pile of, like, science fiction graphic novels, like, fall over on him and pin him to the ground and almost suffocate him. <laughs> that'd be a... So that's uh, I was thinking how that'd be a funny plot for a bad murder mystery on TV. Keep thinking that. <laughs> this is serious. This is serious. So dry drowning is actually a real thing. And I, of course, I went to Snopes to check it out to see if they had anything to say. And then I, I did, you know, a very wide search on this. And yeah, it's real. I, I it's funny. The term really is misleading because you just like dry drowning. What's all, what's that about? But you know, water could and probably does have something to do with this. So this is not to be confused with something called delayed drowning which I'll get into in a minute, but that also exists. And I can understand why so many people wrote in because both of these things sound, you know, strange and made up. Dry drowning, which happens to account for about 10% of all drownings, has several theories as to why it happens. And it's believed to occur when there's a quick flow of water 
or even a very small amount of water that enters someone's throat or lungs, and this causes your body to suddenly close the airway. Upon further reading, I found that water is not even required, that this could even happen to someone when they're in bed. You know, something triggers that, that muscle to close your throat. The strangler poison. Yeah, Zan, that's right, Steve, and that's what killed the king. So WebMD says that your vocal cords suddenly seize up, blocking the flow of air into your lungs, and that this can also happen anywhere spontaneously. This is called laryngospasm. Laryngospasm. Laryngospasm, yeah. Yep. Uh, Good job, and this can be associated. Thank you. <laughs> I, it doesn't happen that often, but I actually found a phonetic uh, spelling of it, and I, I have it here. So this can be associated mm-hmm. with with having a gastroesophageal reflux esophageal esophageal, or you've heard of GERDs, right? See, they didn't have that word spelled out on the internet for me, Steve. Yeah. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so this thing could happen. And it could be also be a cause of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. They think that this is possible that, you know, some children actually could have this thing happen where their, the, the muscles in their throat tighten up and it could suffocate them. It's reported that a person cannot talk or breathe for, you know, up to two minutes or longer until the muscles in their throat relax. And when, when it starts to go away, they, they could still have trouble talking and breathing could be, could be rough for a little while because it's not like it just all of a sudden happens and then goes away, like it kind of fades away. I also read that when people jump into shockingly cold water that this could stop your heart and this could happen as well, which is bad. Don't jump into really, really cold water, swimmers. Now, delayed or secondary drowning, this is a very different thing. Some could have water enter their lungs, right? So let's say you're, you're horsing around in the, you know, the ocean or your pool with some friends or whatever, and you accidentally take a little inhale of water and you cough it up. You know, I've, I'm sure that Bob has, has seen this on Baywatch a million times, oh my which we God. all know he still watches reruns of that. And you know, for the, the, deal, for the record, I've never seen one episode. They, on TV, <laughs> Nothing to be like, embarrassed about Bob. Yeah, Bob, I mean, come on. You could, you could admit it now. Go ahead. <laughs> so anyway, you know, you've seen, everyone has seen this. The, the person drowned. Not dead, but you know, maybe they're not breathing or whatever, and they do mouth to mouth, and then the person spits up water that's in their lungs, and then the person's okay. Well, what a lot of people don't know, and I, I did not know this until I did this research, is that about two percent of the time, someone who was recently saved from a potential drowning incident could die from one to twenty-four hours later after they the water entered their lungs, and you know, it's also called delayed drowning, and this can happen. You really, even with someone that's not showing m- many symptoms or symptoms that you would think wouldn't be that worrisome, right? So, for example, I have breathed in water while swimming in the pool, and I kind of could feel the water in my lungs for a day later, up to a day, and you cough, and you get like kind of that wet cough, like you could feel like something's in your lungs, right? I think a lot of people who who swam a lot as kids in particular probably are familiar with that sensation. But there's a lot of other symptoms that could also happen. You could have trouble breathing, like I said, some type of chest pain. You could have a continued cough, sudden changes in your behavior, which are due to a lack of oxygen to the brain, extreme fatigue, which is a lack of oxygen, weakness, and a pale complexion. So what happens here is that people breathe in some water or they were saved from a drowning, right? They actually were, were revived. And then, you know, they come back, they're fine, you know, everything seems to be okay. And then later they're showing some symptoms or whatever. And what's happening is, is there's water still in their, in their lungs and they are slowly like just drowning outside of the water because that water in their lungs is doing damage and it's blocking the um, uptake of oxygen. 
Also, Jay, it causes further edema. So the, the irritation to the, to the lungs themselves can produce edema, which is, which is fluid. So fluid could actually be building up in the lungs just because of the chemical or irritation of the lungs. Now, this is really important, this next thing I'm about to say. If any of those symptoms are noticed by anybody that you're with, that person should be brought to the hospital, and you shouldn't joke around with this. I mean, even, you know, they say 2% of people that, that breathe in water that, that have, a, you know, some type of incident here could die. This is actually serious, and it's amazingly preventable. So you should bring them to uh, any place that can give them oxygen and put them on a ventilator. And, yeah. you know, you know, and I would particularly worry about if this was happening to a little kid because they're not as resilient and, you know, ask them, how are you feeling? Like if they did breathe in any water and they're coughing, at least observe them and ask them a bunch of questions about any symptoms they might be having. Drowning is the second most likely cause of death in children. So please teach your kids how to swim and how to be safe in and around any kind of water, pool, ocean, anything, even a kiddie pool. Young swimmers have to be watched at all times and you should have a fence around your pool, even if your local government doesn't make you do it because other kids can come in and fall in your pool and drown. So it's very serious. Guys, the simple act of closing your mouth and knowing how to hold your breath, which you should teach your kids at the right time. If, the, if you do, if you just know when I jump in the pool, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And, and, and if I'm horsing around, you know, teach them how to save their breath, hold their breath. This could save their life. It's, it's an easy thing to teach your children. It doesn't cost that much money to get them professional swim lessons and you could be saving their life. Have you guys seen those infant survival swim lessons that they do? It's not just teaching kids to swim or getting babies acclimated to the water. It's mostly uh, focused on toddlers, but I think you can do it with babies as well. But apparently uh, it teaches kids not just to swim, but as soon as they hit the water, uh, they're taught to roll over onto their back and to start screaming. And there are there are some honestly really amazing videos on YouTube showing babies that, you know, they chuck into the pool and they do this. And it's really remarkable, remarkable because it can actually save kids' lives because it overcomes their, what may be their instinct to go face down or to panic. Uh, instead, it gives them the kind of confidence to know exactly what to do to float instead of uh, drown. A couple other things. Jay, do you know what the technical definition of dry drowning is? No. There's no water in the lungs. So if they, someone asphyxiates, and even it could be in the context of being in water, and they do the autopsy, there's no water in the lungs, that's technically a dry drowning. And of course that happens because the, the throat closes up, doesn't let the, the water or air get in. Um, the other point is that a lot of the sites that talk about, you know, how to save, you know, prevent drowning accidents, because it is very important, is that the, the cartoon or TV image of somebody drowning who they're flailing around and panicking, is very rare. That's not what happens. When people drown, it's very quiet and they just sort of just slip under the water quietly. And that's, that's a far more likely scenario. And it's very easy to miss. And a lot of drownings occur with people all around. All right. Well, let's move on now that we've saved everybody from drowning. Do you guys, uh, use Wikipedia as a resource a lot? Sure. No. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I cross, we got a cross reference. You got to look further too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a starting point. Exactly, it's a starting point. But a lot of people use Wikipedia. What's interesting is that even um, physicians and medical students will use Wikipedia for health information. It's not uncommon for physicians to search for information. Use Google right there in the office when they're looking for information. There was a recent study 
that was comparing the accuracy of Wikipedia entries for the most commonly searched medical issues, comparing that with the research literature to see, well, how exactly accurate is it? They assigned the 10 most costly medical conditions. They assigned each to two different physicians in training. So these are like interns and residents. Um, instructed them to identify every factual claim, every assertion, and list them. And then they would conduct a literature search to see is the assertion correct or not correct. And then they uh, obviously compared like how well did each of the entries do. So of the 10 articles that they examined, nine of them were found to be significantly discordant, meaning that there was a significant difference between the assertions made in the article and the results of the peer-reviewed research. Wow. They, I didn't see this specifically tallied anywhere, but I looked at the tables. I went through it and I, I added them all up. And the, the figure that I came up with was that the, that 24% of the assertions were incorrect. So about a quarter, about a quarter of the facts stated Eesh. in each of the articles, taking all 10 articles, were not correct. It's like your own science or fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, a little disconcerting. It's, uh, you would like, you would, would hope that the ratio would be higher. And this also didn't look at omissions. This only looked at the facts that were there. So they could have been leaving stuff out and that was not in any way tallied. I wonder how it would compare to, uh, you know, in the past, whenever there are studies on Wikipedia, generally it's compared to other encyclopedias. Yeah. So I wonder how it would compare to like Encyclopedia Britannica, for instance. Yeah, which exactly. Which wouldn't be updated as often. So might, maybe it would not be as good in that respect, but maybe the things that are there are more accurate. Yeah, I mean, Wikipedia does generally compare favorably to things like Encyclopedia Britannica. I, I agree with that. A couple of things I think that are worth pointing out. I think, you know, as, as Evan said at the top, that you, you use Wikipedia as a, um, a starting point. Uh, what's interesting is like my daughter, I think I said this on a previous episode, their schools don't allow them to use Wikipedia as a reference when they're doing a project, for example. So I told her, well, that's you could still use it because it gives you a good overview of the topic. And then you look at the references and you click through to them and then use those as your references, right? Because then they're, and yeah. you always try to work your way back to an original source. I mean, I think that that's still a little bit of a sophisticated concept for them. But, you know, rather than using secondary or tertiary sources, you always want to follow the source back as far as you can to the most original source that you, that you can. Um, so you could still use Wikipedia as sort of just as your first entry point. It's also a good way to learn like what are the players, what are the concepts, what are the search terms that I should be using, et cetera. But yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever rely upon it as an ultimate reference, you know, as an ultimate source of information. It also, you know, for me suggests that, well, we really need to engage professionals in doing this kind of thing and, you know, keeping Wikipedia as accurate as possible. It's only as good as the people who, who edit and who, who fix it. So. But I wonder, you know, how many, how many people who have an expertise that would be worthwhile also have the time and the interest yeah, in I know. editing Wikipedia. Exactly. But I think it's worth it. I do think it, and it, it's. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to keep just making that point and hoping that enough experts out there spend the time. Cause it's something, you know, it's like you, there's lots of things in this world that you can, can complain about. This is something you could actually do something about. You know what I mean? Yeah. If something's wrong in another reference, you can't do anything about it. Here you go, go fix it. You know, if you, if, if, yeah. if you <laughs> yeah. do the, do the research, add the reference, make the correction, you know, whatever. And, and I've found some Wikipedia entries are unbelievable. They're excellent. They're textbooks. 
They are yeah. fabulous. Yes. It all depends on whether or not somebody, some appropriate expert put the time in to like really make the entry high quality. But some of them in there are just fantastic. But you just don't know. You just don't know where, you know, if you, unless you're an expert yourself, you don't know how accurate the information is. Yeah, I'm a little spoiled, I think, because I primarily um, go there for, for science stuff. And typically, the ones I go to, are, uh, they're pretty much written mm-hmm. by physicists. I mean, clearly, these guys know it at such a deep level. There's yeah. whole chunks of it that I'm like, what are you talking about? Uh, exactly. But not many, and uh, so I, I just so line. that's what I'm that's what I'm used to, and it seems like oh they're all high quality, aren't they? But no, they're they're not. Yeah, it's still hit or miss, and of course the controversial yeah. topics. <laughs> oh god. Yeah, then it's all bets are off. But again, we, you know, as we, we interviewed, you know, like Susan Gerbic and Tim Farley about it, Tim Farley about it in the past, that um, they're trying to do a better job of of moderating the editors and making sure that the people who are editing are trying to add quality to Wikipedia and not grind some axe, you know. So it's getting better. It's still it's still a valuable resource. You can look up axe grinding on Wikipedia, you could, too. You could. Can you look up hurricanes? All right, I want a quickie with Bob. Yay, thank you, Evan and Rebecca. This is your quickie with Bob. You were threesome. <laughs> <laughs> been a, it's been way too long. So, guys, this, is, this one's pretty cool. It looks like... <laughs> It looks like it looks like magnetism plays a much bigger role in black hole dynamics than we previously thought. A team of scientists from the U.S. Department of Energy's Lawrence Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy uh, they surveyed dozens of black holes and they determined that at at fairly close distance, distances the magnetic field of a black hole is just as strong as its titanic gravitational pull. Now, that really got my attention. But if you think about it, it's a little deceiving because gravitational forces drop off quickly with distance. So what do you, so what distance are you talking about? Because from a light year, a black hole, you know, isn't very, isn't strong at all. Only when you get crazy close does it really ramp up. So at what, at what distance does it balance out? And I, I actually went to, uh, I got the abstract and read through it. Couldn't find anything really specific in terms of the exact distance. But it's it's fairly close, and, and I'm also sure it depends on the specifics of the black hole. But it's close enough; it gets strong. It, it gets the magnetic field gets very strong, uh, very close to the black hole enough that it affects the dynamics of the accretion disk, which is which is the swirling drain of gas that spirals into the black hole, and uh, this in turn affects the twin jets of radio emitting gas that some black holes emit. And those are among my favorite pictures, astronomy pictures, to have this gorgeous galaxy with a clearly a, an active black hole with these twin jets going uh, from the, uh, out the north and south pole for, for like light years. I mean, it's, 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 they're beautiful. So these jets can act, can potentially impact their host galaxies and other galaxies. So, so black holes in their magnetic fields uh, can have more of an effect on their local environment, mo- much more than, than we thought previously. Previously, so this was uh, pretty cool, and thank you. This has been your quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you too. Excellent, oh, it was. Thank you, Bob. So, Evan, I'm still interested in those <laughs> those hurricanes. Apparently, female yeah. hurricanes are deadlier than male hurricanes, just like spiders. Is there a song called that? Right, the female is more deadlier than the male. More deadlier, like that. <laughs> more deadlier, yeah. More deadlier. I think that's how the song goes. <laughs> uh, ah, it's poetic been a long license. Time. Well, I ask you, gentle listener, what is in a name? Can a name mean the difference between life and death for some people? Well, if you believe the outcome of a recently released study on hurricanes, then your answer might be yes. The study revealed that, historically speaking, hurricanes with female names have, on average, killed more people than those with male names. Right. 
And this study comes to us courtesy of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Kiju Jung was the leader of this study, and uh, they, he and his team made the discovery after analyzing archival data about the 94 hurricanes that hit the United States between 1950 and 2012. They write, I quote, Changing a severe hurricane's name from Charlie to Eloise could nearly triple its death toll. Really? How is that possible? Well, the team thinks that the effect that they found is due to unfortunate stereotypes that link men with strength and aggression and women with warmth and passivity. Yes, thanks to these biases, people might take greater precautions to protect themselves from Hurricane Victor while reacting more apathetically to Hurricane Victoria. And they also say these kinds of implicit biases routinely affect the way actual men and women are judged in society. And that comes from Sharon uh, Shevet, who helped design the study. She says it appears that these gender biases can have deadly consequences. So, all right, I have one question. You said this, they, they went back, they went back to the 1950s. So from 1953 to 1979, only women's names were used for Hurricanes. Mm-hmm. After 1979, they started alternating men to women's. So is this, could there be just a temporal bias here? Maybe just more people died in the 50s and 60s from hurricanes than later on? That's certainly what the critics, uh, people who are critical of this, these findings have been suggesting, um, all over the comments and actually some professionals have rung in on that oh, okay. very point. However, the, the authors did have a uh, retort to that. And I'll quote what they said here. They said, we are of course aware that all cur- hurricanes had female names from 1953 through 1978. Uh, in 1979, they began alternating names. However, our analysis primarily focused on the femininity versus masculinity of the names, not only male versus female as a binary category. Even during the female-only years, the names differed in degree of femininity, right? So they say compare two film female names such as Fern, which is less feminine, to Camille. Which they feel is a rather that gives me less name. confidence in this data, and less confidence yeah. because it's subjective. Yeah. It's subjective. yeah, and you know, and when they, you know, they did look at the data from 1979 on, and the effect disappeared. Mm-hmm. They say that they didn't have enough data points to come to any kind of significantly uh, statistically significant conclusion. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there is an issue. Like, I, I totally understand what they're saying about they, you know, they use this 11 point scale. But at the same time, you have to admit that, uh, even though you're using a scale instead of a black or white male versus female dichotomy, you still have a heavily weighted scale in yeah. terms of male versus female. The other thing that really stuck out, uh, for me was when, um, Harold Brooks at NOAA, uh, did a statistical analysis in which he removed Hurricane Sandy as an outlier. And uh, now the researchers had already removed Katrina and Audrey as outliers. But Brooks found that if you remove Sandy as well, uh, the data actually slightly leans more towards the male names being more, uh, or I should say the more masculine yeah. names being more destructive. So I, I think when when you... Can only when you look at just the data where there's parity of male versus female names and you don't have enough data points, I think that that's a signal that maybe you should wait until you have more data to make any kind of conclusions about well, this. Well, it also tells me that also if you remove one data point, it changes the result of the study. 
That tells me that there's a very tiny signal here and a lot of noise, Mm -hmm. which means this is all bullshit, is is my impression. Well, I mean, I I wouldn't dismiss the entire thing as bullshit. I would say that we need more research because there are also – um, you know, they didn't just do this analysis of the data. Uh, they also did psychological studies to go along with it. And that's how they, uh, came up with the hypothesis that uh, the reason why this is happening is because people are more scared of male names because they implicitly associate male names with aggression and female names with passivity. And so the psychological tests they did, uh, they did six different tests and they found that subjects were more likely to rate a male, quote unquote, hurricane as being more aggressive than a female hurricane. Uh, and they were mm-hmm. more likely to say that they would evacuate their homes in case the, you know, a male hurricane came through as compared to a female hurricane. The subjects themselves, of course, didn't know that this was about gender. And when asked why they were choosing the way they did, they didn't bring up gender, which is why the researchers are saying that this is an implicit bias as opposed to an explicit mm-hmm. bias. And so there are people who are, I think, justifiably criticizing this part of the paper as well, because the first three studies were done purely on college students. And the, yeah, that's my problem with yeah, this. Yeah. And the last three were done on Amazon's Mechanical Turk. Uh, and, you know, critics are saying that's, that these people will respond differently, maybe, than people who are currently living in coastal cities that are yes. at risk. But, exactly. you know, and, and yeah, that's a, I think that's a valid criticism, but. I think it's very valid. I, <laughs> Absolutely. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's also a valid criticism of 99% of all psychological studies. Well, the college and it doesn't, thing, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't mean that, that, that we should throw that out. It just means that, oh, we, we see an effect here. Uh, it's a very subtle effect. And it's so subtle that when taken into account, this complex problem of getting people to do the right thing in catastrophes, uh, it, maybe it means nothing. Right. Hurricane Fluffy versus Hurricane Hades. Hurricane, right? stay yeah, at home. Get, get extreme. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't doubt that there's an implicit Confusing. bias and you could you know tease out a signal there. I just think that we're dealing with very low signal to noise ratio in all of these, all of this data. And uh, yeah, it doesn't necessarily translate into any kind of measurable real effect. But I, the the, I, the notion of an implicit bias, though, I agree, is plausible. But clearly, it's not. I, I don't think it's having a big effect. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so tenuous in the data. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I can't say this translates into people's lives being saved right. or being lost. You just can't make yeah. that jump. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, the Dollar Shave Club. Why are the razors that we buy? so completely ridiculously overpriced expensive. You know, with the Dollar Shave Club, if you compare the price per price, you are saving an enormous amount of money on something that you have to have in your house at all times, ready to go, right? We shave, some people shave every day, some people shave multiple times a week. You can get the same thing at the Dollar Shave Club. Yeah, I totally gave up on those super high-tech, crazy vibrating handle back scratcher lightsaber razors because they're just they suck you in with the blades and then when you you know in the blade and the and the handle and then when you want more blades it's like five million dollars it's, it's really a joke and the cheap ones that i've been using up until now are are really not quality i mean they last a couple of days and then you got to go get another one so they're, they're not that cheap either i think the dollar shave club.com blades are actually better than the 
big name ones. And, you know, signing up could not be easier. You just go to dollarshaveclub.com and you pick a razor plan. There are three different plans to choose from. And then every month you will get a package in the mail with Dollar Shave Club blades. And they've got other great stuff, too. Did you know that? They don't just have razor blades. Like they what? have. Well, <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Steve. I'm so glad you asked because all I really wanted to talk about during this ad is their butt wipes for men, not women. <laughs> no women allowed. These are for yeah, man butts. Come on. It's no joke, though. Seriously. Like, you wipe with toilet paper, like, you're not getting it. I, all. Nope. Nope. Don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just move on. <laughs> So, all right, here's the skinny. It's only six bucks for a four pack, which is a really good price. Of their four blades, right? That's the actually most expensive version that you can get. So, you know, if you want to join the hundreds of thousands of guys who have upgraded to the smarter way to shave, then just join us at the dollarshaveclub.com slash skeptic. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash skeptic. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Well, Evan, we have a great interview coming up with Bug Girl later. We want to get to that. So you're going to make Who's That Noisy very quick. Yes, let's get right to it. Last week's Who's That Noisy? Here we go. So nice, I played it twice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's okay. some kind of critter. <laughs> it is a critter. Definitely a critter. You guys ever heard that song? What does the fox say? Awful song. That's a fox? That's a fox. Oh, my that's God. A, that's a screaming fox. They didn't have that on the song, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. It's not very musical. No, did, you, did you see not. the knockoff? What does the spleen do? It's really good. <laughs> what oh. does the spleen do? Oh my god! Many, 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 many correct answers. Lots of people have uh, had encounters with foxes apparently in their lifetime. But uh, this week's winner is Angie. Angie Pruent. I hope I pronounced your last name right, Angie. Correct me uh, if I'm wrong. And uh, here's her story. Uh, my mostly positive guess is that the noisy is a fox screaming. I know this because I had one scream outside my bedroom window late one night. I didn't know what it was. I was going outside to find out. I turned to Google and found my answer. Next week, three of my pet ducks were eaten. I'm assuming by said screaming fox. And when I heard the scream again, I ran outside with my flashlight and <laughs> yelled at one of the fox and yelled at the fox to leave my ducks alone. None of my ducks have gone missing since I yelled at that fox. There you go. Well, there you go. <laughs> so well done, Angie, and uh, way to chase that fox away. So you're in the drawing for the end of the year contest. You'll, uh, if we draw your name, you'll be part of science or fiction in early 2015. So with that what said, we got for this week, for this week, a brand, brand, brand new one. Let's see if you guys can figure out who's that noisy. Here we go. <laughs> That's a that's a drunk drunk Liberace falling asleep on his electric <laughs> piano with a bird on his shoulder. Oh, Jay, you're this week's winner. Oh, you're next week's winner, I should say. <laughs> no hints. WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Go ahead and send us your email or on the forums, sguforums.com. Look for the subform. Who's that noisy? Good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. We have a short question this week that's going to have an equally short answer. Well, maybe not equal. Uh, this one comes from Blake Caldwell, and Blake is from Pennsylvania, and he writes, I read that there are studies that suggest that third-hand smoke is hazardous to infants. Is this something to be concerned about, or is it too early to tell? Thanks. Third-hand smoke? I thought they were, we were still arguing about second-hand smoke. I'm still worrying about second-hand drowning. <laughs> second-hand drowning? Yeah, right? 
So secondhand smoke is uh, when you're exposed to, to tobacco or cigarette smoke that somebody else is smoking, but it's actively burning and you're breathing in the, you know, the, the smoke from the other end of the cigarette. Third hand smoke is when you get exposed to the smoke that has essentially soaked into hair, clothes, upholstery, walls, rugs, and carpets. Um, and then can just stay there for months, years and slowly come out over time. Uh, Reed, there's been recent attention paid to third hand smoke to ask the question, is this a risk? You know, is this something that we need, that we do need to worry about? The, the short answer is that it is too early to tell. It, it's, we're in the very preliminary stage of, of sorting this out. What I, well, I've read uh, a few studies, including even reviews already of, of the topic. And what they say is that what we do know is that yes, that the, the products, the chemical, you know, products that are in cigarette smoke do get absorbed and, and can stay for years in the stuff in your environment in a room that they actually can combine with dust particles or other things in the air and form other toxins, some, some that are maybe even worse than the stuff that's that's in the tobacco smoke itself. If you could smell it, it's the bottom line, right? If you can smell it, you're getting particles into your lungs, you know? So it's just a matter of is the dose sufficient to cause any problems? And that hasn't been sorted out yet. So, and, you know, that's going to take a while, I think, to figure that out. But I think, right, a good safety precaution would be, especially with infants, is just don't risk it. Well, you shouldn't smoke anyway because, A, it's disgusting, and, B, it's horrible <laughs> for your health. And it's like one of the most Brother horrible, Matt. easily avoidable risk factors. But, Steve, there is, it just looks don't do it. really cool. <laughs> yeah. It, look what it did for James Dean. It looks idiotic, oh. in my opinion. That, that's just me. It's no, just, I agree. It, you guys, like every now and then, I always ask for a non-smoking room at a hotel. But every now and then, for whatever yeah. reason, I end up in a hotel that a hotel room that's not non-smoking, and it's horrible. It's, it's disgusting. It's dank. It's all. It smells like a, the floor of a bar. It's it's awful. in it's in everything, and you can't get it out. It's not like it's. Well, you just, it's very difficult, and we don't really have the cleaners that that work well. So they do say that if let's say you move into a house and there's a smoker that's been living there for 20 years and it's just soaked into everything, just burn it down. Yeah, well, first you're screwed. Yeah, you just there, you really isn't any way to purify it. And just like opening the windows isn't going to do it. Um, you can replace the carpet. You can mm-hmm. paint the walls. I said painting the walls may you know at least seal in some of it so it won't leak out. Basically, mm-hmm. get rid of anything you can get rid of for everything else. You, know, you really need to launder it over and over again, but it, that doesn't completely remove it either. So it's uh, it's tricky once it's sort of soaked in there. Don't smoke; it's gross. Yeah, just don't. <laughs> so it's definitely plausible. <laughs> it's plausible that third-hand smoke could be, especially for imagine an infant sleeping in blankets that are Yeesh. soaked in with this stuff. Yeah, that it could cause a problem. But yeah, the, we we don't have the clinical research to show what the actual risk is. Is is where we are now. So, but it's probably coming. All right, so thank you, Blake. All right, guys. Well, as promised, we have a great interview coming up with Bug Girl, who's going to get us all up to date on the bees, as you'll see. So let's go to that now. Joining us now is Gwen Pearson, better known as Bug Girl. Bug, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Hey, it's good to be back. 
Yes, welcome back, I should say. So we, we asked you to come on the show to get caught up on a couple of things. We really, really, really want to know how those those bees are doing. <laughs> We've been worried about them. Yeah. You know those bees. You the know bees. the ones. Yeah. They hang so, out with the birds. so which of the, the twenty thousand species of bees do you mean? <laughs> the the ones that were dying, you know, the ones that were on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that are gonna destroy the world when they're all dead. The hunt the honeybees? Honeybees. Oh, okay. So that species, right. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's that actually is a really good illustration of a an issue that I think a lot of people miss is that there really are 20,000 species of bees in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And we tend to focus on just one, which is our domesticated one, the the honeybee, the one that we keep in little barns and uh, steal all their food. There's all of these other bees. And it turns out that, that the more we research native bee species that are not honeybees, the more we find out they're actually the ones that are doing all the work. Um, mm-hmm. And the honeybees are just bastards that are taking all the credit for it. Um, Those damn honeybees! Oh, wow. Screw them! Well, so really, like the a lot of the other species are are doing a lot of the pollen collection and honey making. Yeah, well, not honey making though. Not honey making, but they are doing the pollination. Um, and so, for a lot well, of plants, when you actually look at the numbers, it turns out that almost all of the pollination is being done by native bees. It's kind of like we think of the the honeybees as the f- big important singer. So we'll just oh, let's call them Beyonce, for example. <laughs> I get it. Are you going somewhere with this? <laughs> Stick with me. Because don't bring. Up, I'm pretty sure Destiny's Don't bring up t- Kanye West. I don't. I don't want to hear about like the bee that represents Kanye. No, Destiny's. Well, and child. if he he's a drone, <laughs> and so he's going to die after. And never mind. We don't want to know. Um, I, I realized where I was going to have to go with that in, in terms of the bee reproductive cycle. We don't want to go there. Um, so anyway, so we have our lead singer, which is the queen bee, and she gets all the press. But you also have to have the backup band, and the native bees are the backup band. If you don't have both pieces, nothing works. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of evidence that the native bees are in bigger trouble than the honeybees. Uh, and mm-hmm. because they have very specific requirements about places where they live and things that they need to eat, uh, and they don't have somebody who is keeping track of them and building them houses and helping them out. It's actually a much more complex problem than just the bees <laughs> are dying. Having said that, and, and been really annoying. Uh, <laughs> in terms of the honeybees, actually, they're doing okay. I just really want to kind of bang my head on the table a lot, actually, when I read the media coverage. Um, they're not going to go extinct. They're mm-hmm. fine. Good. Um, Good to hear that. There are many beekeepers that are losing a lot of money and that are losing bees. Um, the reason for that, though, is really varied. So what do you think the number one killer of bees is in the U.S.? Fungus. Pollution. Aliens. Bug zappers. GMO. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Roundup. (laughs) Okay, none of you got it. So it's varroa mites, and it's a parasitic mite that is actually pretty big. If you look at a picture of it on a bee, it would be kind of the equivalent of us having parasitic chihuahuas. Hmm. And they basically Gee. climb wow. into... Yeah, I know. They're huge. You can see them on the bees, walking around on the bees. Ugh. Yeah, it is really gnarly. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> These things are the leading killer worldwide of honeybees. Um, and they're very difficult to treat because they get into the hive. And what they do is they actually crawl in to the baby bee cells. And so they start by basically feeding on the baby bees, uh, the larvae. Uh, and then when the bee hatches out, they just ride along with her uh, and the bee transports them wherever they need to go so they can infest new places. Essentially, the mites are just kind of riding around. Uh, the bees are like their sexual taxis, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. But more than anything else, they're food. <laughs> um, the bees yeah. are food. Uh, yeah. They're well-stocked pimpmobiles. Yes. So, Bob, can't we, can't we create something to kill those parasites? Yes, we need to create a toxic chemical that will kill the parasites. Pesticides that do the worst, some of the worst damage to bees are pesticides that we put on the bees on purpose to kill the mites. Uh, Darn it. Then we also, uh, somebody mentioned fungus, and so we also put pesticides on to kill the fungus that, that kills the bees. There's a lot of things. I, I mean, it's it's not that there is a specific thing that is killing bees. It's everything wants to kill the bees. Like, I could list yeah. a thousand different things that will kill your bees. Um, is it just because we raise so many bees in a small space that we're just creating an environment where stuff is going to evolve to eat them? That is a part of it, I think. Um, and there's there's a lot of new work going into the genetic composition of, of honeybees. Um, because there is a lot of uniformity. But having said that, in general, you can, the nice thing about having bees and having bees be linked to humanity for, for so many years is we can go back in time and look at really detailed records. And so you can see all of these diseases going way back in time for the honeybees anyway, things like foul brood, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> foul brood. Foul brood, mm. yeah. Oh, it's nasty. So, Bug, part of the reason we got you on the show tonight also is because I read somewhere on the internet <laughs> that some bee, some honeybees are making this blue yeah. honey <laughs> that will give you autism. What? Uh, I may have made up the bit about the autism. Okay. Well, that would not surprise me that somebody said that, though, sadly. <laughs> but there is this magical blue honey out there. Yeah. So how does that happen? That's actually not uncommon. Bees like sugar. Uh, and actually, in the winter, there was, there was just yesterday, so I'm on a couple of bee list servers where beekeepers discuss. Um, in the winter, when it's a really tough winter, uh, the bees will have to eat more and they'll eat up all of their extra, their stored food. And so beekeepers will typically feed them extra food to keep them going through the winter. Um, and that can be sugar syrup. But what they had discovered was that you can get fondant, you know, the stuff you make the really fancy cakes yeah. out of. That's mm -hmm. cheaper to feed your bees and the bees really like it. At least somebody does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Give it to your bees. Um, so, so yeah, if it's sweet, uh, they will go and they will seek it out and they will eat it. Uh, and they will turn it into honey and take it back to the hive. Uh, and so there's been a whole bunch of different cases of bees eating things that are funkily colored. But the common theme is always it's something really sweet. And it's usually candy that the one that you were talking about, the blue honey, was, I think, an M&M flavoring. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen it green. <laughs> I've seen it orange. Uh, it's, it's basically when you leave sweet stuff out. Actually, if you leave a jar of honey sitting out, 
over a nice warm afternoon, there will be bees in it, and the bees will take the honey. That's called recycling. It's recycling. Honey, stupid bees. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but wait, wait, wait. If they take the honey, do they digest it and do whatever they do to turn it into their honey, or they'll just keep it? And not not change it. They will they will go ahead and take it in and process it a little bit. But I mean, the process of making honey is actually pretty amazing. Um, and honey itself is is a super saturated sugar solution. So and it gets that way. Essentially, I mean, we it, the common way of describing honey is bee vomit, and it's sort mm. of like mm. a better way to put it would be maybe specially processed bee vomit. <laughs> Wow. Um, so they'll digest the, the honey that they find and they'll kind of re they, they Part of it. what they're doing is they are evaporating water out of the, the nectar and the honey. If you find some plant nectar and sip it up, um, it's really very dilute. And so what they're doing is concentrating it in making that super saturated solution. And they do that by essentially sort of horking up a little bubble of water and nectar and then drying the water out so that it becomes very concentrated. That's why if you have um, honey and you leave, you let your honey sit for a while, it'll eventually crystallize. Honeybees will actually make honey and then they'll eat it later, yes. right? So it is them just saving food. Yes. So when it comes to blue honey, uh, some people apparently are using that as proof that since the dye can transfer from what they're eating to their honey, that that also means that uh, insecticides and GMOs or whatever magical poisons they come up with are also able to be transferred from whatever the bees are eating into honey. And that makes honey dangerous. What do you think of that? Well, there is such a thing as dangerous honey. Um, There are several plants that when bees feed on it, the plants themselves have toxins, and the bees will concentrate those those toxins. Um, so, so naturally, naturally, I'm sorry, naturally occurring toxins. Yeah. <laughs> Poison has to first of all be in the nectar. That doesn't happen with a lot of the compounds that we're talking about. Things like GMOs. the The problem with with GMOs, and for that matter, pesticides, is it's really not about science at all. It's about people's fears of the unknown and fear of not being in control and and fear of things that are new. I mean, I can show you many, many, many research papers. And there are many. I mean, honestly, the the AAAS put out a position statement, which is pretty rare, actually, basically saying GMO is perfectly fine. Get over it. Um, <laughs> okay, they didn't put that in, but that was the subtext in my mind. So there's there's plenty of evidence that very clearly says, no, it's fine as long as it's used appropriately. But the people who are getting upset are not interested in evidence. And I wish I had an answer for that because, and it's a conversation I have a lot about bees because I have the same conversation about pesticides and GMO. There is no evidence right now that GMO plants are harming bees. Yeah. Um, and oh so just, just to be perfectly clear, the, when it comes to pesticides, the pesticides may be on plants, but they're not in the nectar that bees are slurping up. And so it doesn't well, actually get into their system and doesn't get into their honey. It depends on the pesticide because we have this huge range of chemicals that we use in agriculture. 
The issue there, though, is what's a dose for a bee? So what's a toxic dose for a bee? And then what's a toxic dose for a person to have an effect? For both of those questions, there doesn't seem to be any toxic dose for a person. Um, if it's a whole person, you can do things to individual cells um, that are in culture that are a little worrying, but that doesn't really come up a lot. Um, yeah. and, and it's almost always, again, using a really high concentration that you wouldn't encounter. There is a lot of press the last month about the study that came out of Harvard, and it was it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. And the problem was, because it was done at Harvard, it got a lot of press. But what they didn't tell you was, it was done at Harvard by a man who is not an entomologist, <laughs> who is not a toxicologist, who doesn't really seem to know a whole lot about bees. But by golly, he is convinced that he is going to prove. I mean, he, the experiment, he's, some of the experiments he's done, I have used them to demonstrate to students, don't do this. Um, when you're not having mm -hmm. an effect after a month of your experiment, the way to fix that is not to double the dose of what you're feeding your bees in pesticides. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. you're not getting the, what you expected, so you're just going to ramp everything up until you get the results that you wanted. That's not how science works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, eventually you'll get to a toxic dose if you just keep yeah. going up. On yeah, the oh, dose. yeah, yeah. Well, he, so, and also controls are kind of important, I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's, but the thing is, what, there's, there's all of these different things happening. So, first of all, we're in a culture where there's a lot of suspicion. And a lot of people are very suspicious of corporations and what are corporations doing and scientists are what are scientists doing. We really focus on one particular thing. So GMOs are bad. All these sorts of stories, there's always a villain um, and it's very cause effect. One thing is causing this other thing. Because those make really, those are, you know, those make good stories. And we're all about stories because that's what people do is they tell stories. But the problem is that's not how the natural world works. The natural world is super complex and um, really difficult to study. And there's a million things all tied together and it's really hard to parse them apart. That does not play on CNN well at all. It's almost as if biology is a complex system. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait a Wait a moment. All right. Well, <laughs> Bug Girl, we appreciate you straightening us out about the bees and the blue honey. The birds that and was, bees. was weighing heavily well, on birds my mind. Next time. <laughs> I'll bring the birds. You bring the bees. All right? Oh, you guys make a good team. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Bug Girl. Okay. Thanks, Bug. Well, everyone, we have to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. I've been watching The Courses. It's pretty damn awesome that I get to learn from top professors out there. Like, I don't, I don't have the time right now to go to school, you know, and I want to learn about this stuff. I love learning about this stuff. I read about science and all these different topics that, that The Great Courses has. I read about them all the time, but actually using their their CDs or I'm, I'm just watching them, you know, I'm streaming them. It's awesome. It's like I'm taking classes, you know. I am learning a lot about these topics that I already thought I knew a lot about, and I guess I didn't. Yeah, and you can totally tailor it to your own preferred method of learning because uh, you can get the lectures in audio or or video formats. You can watch or listen to them at your own pace. There's no pressure, no homework, no exams. So yeah, I, I love great courses. Yeah, we just listened to the course on Einstein's relativity and the quantum revolution, modern physics for non-scientists by, of course, Professor 
Richard Wolfson. We've talked about him on the show, and he is a wonderful science communicator. Yeah, I'm really enjoying this course. I mean, actually, I listened to um, his lectures years ago, and I'm listening to them again, this updated version for the great courses. And he really walks you through the logic and the scientific progress that, that led to classic physics and then led to why we needed somebody like Einstein to figure out special and then general relativity and quantum mechanics. And this is how it has to be based upon all of the studies that have been done so far. The Great Courses has been in production for over 20 years. They've got over 500 courses on tons of subjects, uh, not just not just science, but mathematics, history, art and music, philosophy, so much more. So listen to it or watch the great courses with digital downloads and streaming or DVDs and and even CDs. Do they still exist? Yes, and you can order Einstein's Relativity and the Quantum Revolution to get 80% off the original price. That's 80% off, but this is for a limited time only. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. All right, guys. Well, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a very special science or fiction this week. Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> you guys love did, it. Did Blossom discover sex and drugs? <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a theme. The theme is strawberries. Hmm. These were sent to me by Kevin Falta, our strawberry expert. You did get them. How are they? Well, you got facts about strawberries. You didn't necessarily get strawberries. He actually, no, he did send me, he sent me like a dozen strawberry plants, all all different hybrids. Oh, plants. It's a hybrid. So did, did you eat any hey. of his his um, taste enriched uh, strawberries? You know, like enhanced strawberries. They haven't. They haven't. Oh, you have to right. actually grow them. Oh, okay. Well, you know, you said the plants, not the strawberries. Yeah, they're they're potted. They're growing. I'm taking care of them, and I'll hopefully have strawberries soon. Grow um, But he also just as, a, as an added bonus sent me a science or fiction. <laughs> so nice the, these are four items about strawberries. All right, cool. Okay, you guys ready? Item number one, the commercial strawberry is octoploid, meaning it has four entire genomes, four complete sets of chromosomes in each nucleus. Item number two, one of the first strawberry scientists was a teenager that examined strawberry plants and arranged them by genetic complexity into a genealogy 100 years before Mendel that still holds up to today's molecular resolution. Item number three, Today's commercial strawberries descend from a cross between two species, a wild strawberry brought to France from Chile by a spy in 1714, and an ornamental plant called the meadowsweet brought to France from North America in the 1500s. And our number four, strawberries are in the same subfamily and are closely related to roses. They are also in the same family with apples, plums, and almonds. There they are. Can you tell the scientists wrote this? Yeah, it's going to take me 20 minutes just to parse all So I'm still on number two, okay? <laughs> Bob, you haven't gone first in a while. You go first. Oh, wonderful. Go for- Did you I'll prep take- for this one, Bob? I'll take five. <laughs> I prepped for a lot of stuff, but not goddamn strawberries. I'll take strawberries <laughs> for a thousand. For a thousand, Shabrak. <laughs> all right. Octoploid, four entire genomes. I don't know at all. Um, Octoploid, that sounds like a badass octopus, doesn't it? I am octoploid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, it a, sounds like a Spider-Man. Doctor Octoploid. That's right. Okay, we got a teenager arranging them. I could, I could buy that, especially that long ago. I mean, 
so many fields are so wide open. I could see even a young person making great strides. But uh, he arranged them by genetic complexity. A hundred years before Mendel, that's still today. See, I'm a little skeptical about that one. Um, I mean, you, I don't think you can infer genetic complexity just by the, how it looks. And I doubt it would, it would hold up fully. So that's my tentative choice. Let's see, we've got a cross between wild strawberry, which was brought by a spy. What the, what, what does a spy care about strawberries? <laughs> And um, ornamental, <laughs> an ornamental plant called, called a meadow sweet. An ornamental. So you're mixing a wild strawberry with an ornamental plant. That's an odd juxtaposition. Hmm. Would that even work? Don't know. Uh, let's see. We've got the subfamily one. Sub Related to roses. I don't know why that rings a bell, but it does. But same family with apples, plums, and almonds. Same family. Same family. I, <laughs> yeah, family, yeah. Bob, family. Family. Partridge family. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of how, where family is in the hierarchy. Um, it's above subfamily. <laughs> thank you. Uh, screw it. I, I think I had a mini streak going, but I think I'm just totally going to blow it here. Um, so which one are you going to go gonna, with? I'm going to go, I'm going to go with a teenager. I mean, I don't think something that was done that long ago would, would uniformly hold up to today's molecular resolution. So I'm going to go with that one as fiction. Okay. Jay? Yeah, you know, this is hard to comment on really any of these just because I don't have the science background. You noticed? Um, <laughs> you think? But I will, okay, I'll say as far as like the the last one about it being in the the Rose family, um, that one is the least shocking to me. You know, I know that like a rose bush, it's a bush, and and uh, there's some similarities there. I could see that. You know, you know, having a pl a flowering plant and a fruit be related, like fla uh, flowering plants and fruits are often related. So that's fine. I'm good with that one. The first one about the octoploid, I love the word. It sounds, you know, legitimate in my limited knowledge and understanding. Sure, I could, I could, that's absolutely possible. And I really, beyond that, I can't say. The one about the, the teenager, like I see Bob's point. I don't disagree. That seems kind of like, at least I could shoot a hole in this one. Like, you know, it seems like it, it happened too long ago and there's too much information that that, the teenager was collecting. And then, okay, so that one is a definite. And then the, the, the commercial strawberry one descending from a cross between two species. Like, I absolutely believe that every, every, um, thing that we eat, for the most part, if not completely, has been modified. So the idea that this was, you know, crossbred and selectively bred, and then, you know, how am I going to remember or know the years that it happened without just reading it on Wikipedia like a half hour ago? I don't know. So that one at least has something in there I can I can chew on and believe. So I have to go with Bob and say that I don't think that the young man uh, did all of that incredible work 100 years before Mendel. Okay, Evan? I thought one of the uh, items here would be strawberry is neither a straw nor a berry. Mm -hmm. But apparently I wasn't so lucky. <laughs> Octoploid. Well, I mean, come on. Who knows this besides? Kevin you know. Falta does. But you're right. And, and four other people. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, for me, it comes down to number, uh, the one about the teenager and the one about, um, the cross between the species. I'll say that, yeah, they're in the family with apples, plums, and almonds. No problem there. Uh, okay. So the teenager, 100 years before Mendel, still holds up to today's molecular resolution. See, I don't know about that part. I don't doubt there was a teenager that did this work. I don't, 
doubt it happened a hundred years before Mendel. I don't know that it still holds up. So the one here brought to France from North America in the 1500s. Okay. So how many things, okay. I know we had explorers reaching North America. There were no settlements per se. Um, I suppose it's possible that they did bring these sorts of species in from North America in the 1500s, but I thought that was a little strange, a little, maybe a little too early. Uh, in time, maybe the 1600s, I would have had no problem with. I'm right about the 1500s, but <sighs> my spidey senses are tingling and telling me to tell, to go with what Jay and Bob had to say about it, and I'll stick with them. I'll say it's the teenager. That one's the fiction. And Rebecca? Yeah, for me, it's between the two that aren't boring, uh, which would be the teenager and the spy. I agree with everybody, I guess, that the teenager one is the most ridiculous, but also I want it to be true. And also I want to improve our chances to not be shut out a bit. So Mm. since none of us really have any idea here, I'm going to go with the spy one as being the fiction. Well, as you all agree on one and four, so we'll start with number one. The commercial strawberry is octoploid, meaning it has four entire genomes, four complete sets of chromosomes in each nucleus. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. And Kevin writes, while diploid strawberries are found in the woods throughout the northern hemisphere, the commercial strawberries are octoploid, each nucleus containing four subgenomes. So there you are. That's cool. Very interesting. All right. Yep. Okay, let's go to Bill Bounce to uh, number four. Strawberries are in the same subfamily and are closely related to roses. They are also in the same family with apples, plums, and almonds. You guys all also think this one is science, and this one is science. Yeah, cool. Hooray. So, strawberries are in the rosoidae subfamily of the rosacea family. The rosacea family is huge. It contains a lot of flowering plants, including apples, peaches, pears, cherries, almonds, and raspberries, and also lots of ornamentals like roses and also the meadow sweet. Was that a strawberry? Well, apparently that's something. <laughs> that's <laughs> never mind. Meadow sweet from item number three. If you remember, the lark. it's not looking good for me, you guys. <laughs> so, uh, but they are most closely related to roses. Yeah, cool. Yeah. You know, so many cool things come out of that family. Why don't they just make more fruit out of there? Like, you know, come up with some new fruit for us. Wait, you're not satisfied? You're saying so much stuff comes out of them. Why don't we have more? No, I'm I'm saying that I'm such an amazingly huge fan of fruit. Like, I just love fruits that I would love yeah. more. Like, well, they are. They're, they're constantly hybriding like, and GMOing, if that's a word. I made that Rebecca, word up. Rebecca, let, let me remind you that somebody pretty much invented the orange. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, keep going. Some, well, that, whoever that kick-ass person was, like, thank but you. But they are. Like, somebody invented yeah. the pluot, like, just the other day, right? I don't so. – I've never had one. Are they delicious? <gasps> You've never had a pluot? I don't oh, even so know what good. it is. It's a, a plum and a, an apricot. Oh, awesome. Mixed together. Oh, it's really so good. Yeah. Oh, God. Where can I get Interesting. this? At, yeah, at the your grocery store? store? Pluots are, <laughs> are us. I've seen them at my local grocery store. Yeah, they're not that uh, Okay. It's next to the kangaroo. The thing is, like, you know how you're walking down, Jay, you're walking in the produce aisle and there's like all the usual stuff and yeah. there's one little section with all the weird shit that you just walk by and <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, look at. Yeah. It's, in it's in there. It's in there. It's in there. I had to tell you real quick when I went to, one of the times I went to Hawaii, 
I think I was on the Kauai Island and uh, I was like so psyched. I'm going to have like a fresh coconut. You know, the guy cuts down a coconut <laughs> and cuts the top off and gives me a straw and I'm holding this gigantic co- coconut. I'm like, I'm going to drink it. It's going to be delicious. And it was terrible. <laughs> it was Aww. terrible. I couldn't believe it. I'm, then I'm standing there the with like this $30 <laughs> coconut in my arm. It's, like, it's giant. And I'm like, what do I do? Drop it and run? Like, what do you do with a coconut? Like and that, that guy is just looking at you like, sucker. I know, right? <laughs> I put some While he's drinking here, a, like, a delicious Diet Coke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ice cold Diet Coke. And I'm like sucking <laughs> on like this basketball You're eating a lukewarm coconut, <laughs> coconut milk. <laughs> Anywho, so let's uh, let's go back to number two. Yes. Oh, two. For no particular reason. Why are you going to number two? <laughs> one, for no particular reason. For no, because it's after one. One of the first strawberry scientists was a teenager that examined strawberry plants and arranged them by genetic complexity into a genealogy 100 years before Mendel that still holds up to today's molecular resolution. The guys think this one is the fiction. Rebecca thinks this one is science. Wait, 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 wait. Bob, Evan, let's let's pray to Carl Sagan right now real quick. <laughs> Maybe he can help us. Okay. All right, I'm done. Go ahead, Steve. Okay. <laughs> and this one is the su- is science. Oh! <laughs> Good job, Rebecca. You covered covered your Thank bets. Thank you. All right, so let me read what uh, Kevin wrote. <laughs> Antoine Duchesne's father worked as the superintendent of buildings for King Louis the Fourteenth. As a boy, he traveled with his father to work in the Tianan Gardens. He studied strawberries and became interested in botany. Eventually, meeting with Linnaeus and publishing the book, um, some French title. La History Naturelle de Frasier at 17. He constructed a genealogy or map of relatedness based on morphological characteristics and interfertility. That might have been the trick there. So it wasn't just morphology. So the, 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 to back up a little bit, before we knew about genetics and evolution, all that kind of stuff, in the Linnaeus era, you know, taxonomy is based basically on what stuff looks like, just based on physical characteristics, you know. And so that's morphology. Which is a pretty good, it's a pretty good guide to genealogy, to relatedness, but it's not always perfect because you can have convergent evolution and, you know, analogous versus homologous traits, for example. Um, so it doesn't always give you a perfect map of evolutionary relationships. But what Antoine did was he looked at a whole bunch of different strawberry plants and he came up with a, geneal- a genealogy based on what they looked like, but also on how well they crossbred with each other. So I guess that gave him a little edge. And his his genealogy was so good that now, whatever, a couple hundred years later, with with all of our genetic analysis, it still holds up. It's still pretty good. Pretty wow. amazing. Yeah. All right. All of this means that today's commercial strawberries descend from a cross between two species, a wild strawberry brought to France from Chile by a spy in 1714, and an ornamental plant called the meadowsweet brought to France from North America in the 1500s. Let me read you Kevin's description. There are written accounts of colonists bringing woodland strawberry plants, F. virginiana, back to, back from North America to Europe throughout the 1500s. Some of these plants made their way to the Royal Botanical Gardens in Versailles. In 1714, a French spy named Amadie Francois Frazier was traveling to Chile and came across the large-fruited F. chiluensis, which he brought back to Europe. F. chiluensis ended up in the botanical garden where it eventually hybridized with F. virginiana, leading to today's commercial strawberry. So the part about the spy was correct and the part about 
1500s was correct. It was the it was just two different strawberry species that were hybridized, not the meadow sweet. The meadow sweet uh. is a ornamental in the rosacea family, but it's uh, uh probably poisonous or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I would, but wouldn't it looks nothing like a strawberry? It's could if you knew what it was, it really wouldn't. I don't know. I don't think it would plausibly hybrid with a strawberry. But, Pretty tricky. Yeah. So I actually, um, so Kevin sent me all this information. I actually did tweak them a little bit. I changed which one was the science and which one was the fiction because I thought he made it too tough. Actually, too tough. Yeah. <laughs> this so is the wait, easier. Wait. So you dumb these down, Steve? <laughs> no, just the, what, the, what, the way one was a fiction was like. The one that he made the one about the, um, he, I think his, his fiction was that the strawberry is more closely related to the peach than the rose. That was his fiction. Nope, because it's the other way around. See, I would have thought that was very easy. That would have been a very easy call for me. Well, whatever. I thought this was more interesting. <laughs> so it's all his information. Whatever. I just switched him around a little bit. Well, whatever. Me. I'm, I'm very pleased with this win. For some <laughs> reason, I'm much more pleased than the times when I like puzzle through it or when I, and actually know it <laughs> just through that more dart of the dartboard and yeah to it. do it out of spite yeah you know <laughs> I'm gonna, on your on your four-sided dice i'm gonna done. pick this one just so somebody else doesn't win <laughs> <laughs> right all right well thank you kevin that was a lot of fun yeah thanks kevin yeah for nothing no, no more no more emails kevin, please. You emailed me you know and be like hey jay it's number two you know so. <laughs> All right, Jay, you got a quote for us? I have a quote sent in by a listener named C.E. Downs from Los Angeles, United States. Downs. And the quote is, Don't let us forget that the causes of human actions are usually immeasurably more complex and varied than our subsequent explanations of them. And these can rarely be distinctly defined. The best course for the storyteller at times is to confine himself to a simple narrative of events. And this is from... The book, The Idiot, by, <laughs> now, you idiot. check me out on this, Fyodor Dostoevsky. Yeah, Dost- that's, yeah. <laughs> that's Dost- his name. Dostoevsky, yeah. <laughs> right. I pronounced that pretty good, huh? Yeah. Good job. Right. Pretty well, even. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty goodly. Seriously. How many days did you practice? <laughs> I listened to the uh, pronunciation on Wikipedia about 30 times. Yes. <laughs> it's a good starting yeah. point. I don't know why I have a problem with pronunciation. I just do. You got that gene from our father, who also can't pronounce words. Uh, isn't it pronunciation? Kidding. Pronouns. Jay, why did you choose that quote? What was your motivation and the reason for your behavior? Things are a lot more complicated and a lot more intertwined and complex than they think they are. Things are not so simply black and white. All right. Well, thank you, Jay. That was very wise. Hey, just a reminder that I'm going to be at SkeptiCon, uh, July 4th weekend, uh, in Minneapolis. Go to skepticcon.com. Yep, and we are going to be at TAM in July and at DragonCon in September and in Australia and New Zealand in November and December. Busy year. Busy year. All right, thank you all for joining me this evening. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. 
Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.